0: Nina Martini and Rich Linkoff you know what time it is welcome to Legal Face off Two lawyers trading jam for jam. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGA it's
1: a busy Radio. day per usual we'll here. Legal Face Off on WGN Radio, WGNRadio.com. Rich Lankoff, Tina Martini. The Legal Eagles are here. And who else are we going to start with today? The president, Donald. I mean, we talk about this guy We never much. talk about him ever. He's the new Bill Cosby. In, a weird, in the first three years of this show, it was always Bill Cosby. Now it's always the president, Donald Trump. We'll talk about his impeachment and his legal defense team. Also, an interesting journey where a man was convicted and now he's an attorney plus a bill on transgender student-athletes and the legal grab bag per usual. Leading us off, though, today, Julian Zelizer, CNN political analyst, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, and the forthcoming book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. He is the author, Julian Zelizer. Professor, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're watching day two of the impeachment hearings right behind us here in studio live. And you've been critical of Alan Dershowitz, who, by the way, is a frequent guest on Legal Faceoff. Apparently too busy this week to appear on our show, but we're very happy to have uh, the distinguished professor. So you've been very critical of him because he said that neither of the articles of impeachment are specific crimes and therefore not impeachable offenses. Why is the professor wrong?
3: Well, there's two things he said uh, that I think haven't uh, held much water. That's number one, uh, that somehow in the Constitution it has to be a criminal offense to be an impeachable offense, and that's not what's in there. Uh, There's a lot of discretion in terms of what abuse of power is, Uh, and I think simply from the other impeachment cases that we've had, you already see the broad range of issues that count. He's also defended a very absolutist view of presidential, power, which is not always what he's talked about in the past, uh, but it's very uh, popular in some of the circles surrounding the president, including William Barr. And it's, it's a really aggressive vision that uh, presidential power is so grand, it's very hard to implicate the president for almost anything. And I think both of those arguments just are, are not true, and they're dangerous for the democracy.
4: Professor, in fact, Dershowitz, in the last impeachment trial of President Clinton, said that the act does not have to be an actual crime to be an impeachable offense. So why is he changing his tune now?
3: Well, uh, he 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 had some kind of explanation the other day that he's more correct now than he was back then. Look, some people argue that there's just a lot of hypocrisy when impeachment happens and people flip it around depending on who the person being targeted is. But I think Alan Dershowitz has aligned himself with this president uh, in in the last few years very closely, even though he still identifies as a liberal Democrat and says he supports Democrats. He's come to the defense of president trump and at this point i will take him at face value and that what he is saying is now what he believes and uh, my criticism about his view of the presidency an imperial presidency is just on the grounds of what he's saying now but but certainly his past comments do contradict a lot of what he's saying right now
2: professor i want to get into your feelings on the imperial presidency in a moment but explain to our listeners because i think honestly even though this phrase has been covered to death and anyone who's watched even a little bit of coverage you know would probably understand it but explain to our listeners again why you feel the high crimes and misdemeanors uh, section which is section four of article two of the constitution where it says the president shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors, why do you think these articles fit the bill? They certainly, you know, the argument goes they certainly had the opportunity to bring, for example, a bribery charge. They didn't. That would have unquestionably met the um, definition according to Section 4. They didn't do that. Instead, they brought these other two articles. So why, in your opinion, do these other two articles do fit the definition, definition of an impeachable offense?
3: On um, bribery i actually I agree, uh, and I, I think that could have been one of the charges. This is a pretty clear case that we 're seeing, but certainly the idea of a president using pretty serious foreign policy uh, involving a nation that's that's in the middle of a war uh, as a tool, uh, as leverage for his own self-interest, for his own campaign, fits the model of what the founders had in mind when they feared what a president could do with their authority. Uh, and from kind of what I've read about from the founding, but also just what I've seen of how Congress has exercised this power with Richard Nixon, for example, This is exactly the misuse of power that uh, legislators have this provision uh, in place for. Uh, and and it seems pretty clear-cut to me. And if you take this policy and just switch it to whatever your preferred policy is, and imagine a president just using it as raw leverage uh, for his own self-interest, I think it becomes very clear kind of why this is exactly what high crimes and misdemeanors stands for.
2: All right, so you mentioned the imperial presidency. You've also, I think, referred to it in some of your writings as the unitary executive theory that actually predates President Trump and started with the Bush administration in the post 9-11 era. Can you explain that um, to our listeners, what you mean by that and why it's dangerous in your opinion?
3: Yeah, I mean, the term actually comes in 1973. A historian, Arthur Schlesinger, titles his book The Imperial Presidency, and he's talking about Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon and how they're wielding their authority. Uh, But then when George W. Bush is president, this idea in conservative legal circles takes hold of the unitary executive theory, where the president has almost total control of the executive branch, which in effect means uh, if an investigation is taking place in to what the president did from the FBI, for example, or a special prosecutor, that the president does have the authority to get rid of that person, to fire that person, because they have total control of the executive branch. And, and that, for many observers, has become the ultimate symbol that that imperial presidency of 1973 is stronger than ever. And after George W. Bush in 9-11, it became... Stronger, Uh, and in some ways, that's what President Trump has been capitalizing on.
4: So, Professor, looking at the past day of the impeachment trial, why don't you give us some winners and losers from the first 24 hours?
3: Well, I think both sides uh, are getting something that they want. I I think the Democratic uh, House managers have presented a very compelling case already, simply through the amendments and in the first few hours of opening arguments, explaining what the president did, providing very compelling video testimony, not only of people who testified before the House, but of the President himself doing exactly uh, what they have accused him of doing, and they've laid out a cogent case uh so for. Democrats who they're speaking to, and even for independents, I think their arguments are part of the reason there's such strong support still for impeaching and even removing the president, upwards of 51%. Republicans can feel good, though, because generally Republicans are staying put. Uh, other than Susan Collins asking to break up the day uh, from 12 hours to 8 hours, uh, the Republicans have pretty much been on board with the procedure, and it's unclear any- Many of them are thinking of voting to remove the president. So ultimately, preserving the president is what the Senate Republicans are trying to do. So so I think so far, in very different ways, both sides are accomplishing their goals.
1: He is Julian Zelizer, analyst at CNN, professor at Princeton University, and the author of the new book coming up, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Professor, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thanks for having me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey & Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, The Greatest Team in Football History, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit bdlfirm.com. That's bdlfirm.com.
1: Welcome back to Legal Face Off. Rich Lenkoff, Tina Martini, Sam Paniatovich. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter. You can also rate, review, and listen to the show wherever you consume your podcast. I'm just going to read the title of this article in the Detroit Free Press. Michigan attorney sworn in by judge who sent him to prison 20 years ago. We have this gentleman on the line right now, Bob Van Summerin. Bob, welcome to the show.
4: Hi, glad to be here. So, Bob, we'd like to set the stage for our listeners. So, back in 1999, you were convicted in Hillsdale County, Michigan, in connection with robbing a gas station and an unarmed bank robbery. You were sentenced to 70 to 240 months in prison, and you were released from prison back in 2005. Since that time, by every measure, you've turned your life around. In addition to having a wife and two young children, you went on to get your bachelor's and master's degrees in the humanities, and you are also a recent law school graduate of Wayne State University. So I'm sure our listeners would love to hear why, after your difficult experience with the legal system, you decided that you wanted to become a lawyer.
5: Well, you know, it... uh my involvement with the criminal justice system, it made a profound stamp on me. I, I, uh, I was impressed by some of the lawyers I met, some of the lawyers, uh, I was not impressed with, but they also kind of serve as their own example. But, uh, you, know, going through the, the process, I, I, I I I never really, uh, even going through prison and all of that as a young man, I mean, those were formative years for me, was during the age of 19 and 25, I never really kind of uh, developed a resentment toward the system, you know, the the way that a lot of people do. I I kind of understood that, that what was happening to me was a result of my choices, and you know, and uh, that. In fact, during my time, I sort of welcomed the opportunity to pay my debt, and uh, it, it, I thought that once I was released, it would kind of, I, I would have paid my debt. I didn't know about the collateral consequences that would follow. Anyway, I, so I think my interest in becoming a lawyer was kind of formed by what followed prison, you know, facing the collateral consequences, seeing the kind of obstacles that people face. I early on I kind of realized I was fortunate and that I had some help. But um yeah, I guess I guess I part of part of going to law school and wanting to be a lawyer was to be literate in the the workings of the system, you know, and to understand law and policy.
2: What were some of the takeaways that you Accomplished from being incarcerated that you think um, are enabling you to succeed in the law today. Is there anything that in particular you felt was impactful while uh, incarcerated that is assisting you in your work today?
5: Yeah, a couple of things stick with me from those experiences. That You know, I'm a, a, a 40-year-old white male. And I, I come from kind of a rural place. And in, in in prison, I met just people from all different walks of life, people I, w- I wouldn't have ordinarily known. Now, granted, these are the, a lot of, you know, a lot of troublemakers in prison, but I I also got to hear people's stories. And so some of, some of the thinking that allowed me to go into prison in the first place, you know, and commit the crimes I did was this kind of sense of entitlement, you know, that, that I had been treated unfairly, that I was owed something. Once I started meeting some of the people in prison, especially some guys from Detroit who just had, had real tough lives. It, uh, it, it just started to make me appreciate some of the good fortune even in spite of being in prison that i i do enjoy and another thing though that i i take from prison in my life is uh kind of the stigma of having having a criminal record it's it's it, it it keeps me humble, and it also informs me. I think it, it, I don't know if any other groups would feel that I can relate to them, but I can. I feel I can relate to some people who, who walk around with various types of stigma. It, it's funny that I part part of I had been researching the character and fitness process for about since about two thousand nine, and so I started to understand it very well. And what appealed to me was. At least in front of a panel of lawyers, I'll have a shot to, to you know, kind of present my case uh, and, and make the case that I do have moral character and mental fitness necessary to practice law. But I could not go out today and probably get a job at Seven Eleven, you know, and I probably couldn't rent an apartment because I would just be outright banned by the box. So carrying that stigma with me, I, th- I think I've done all right. I've accomplished what I wanted to do. I, I have a great job. It looks like my career is going to be a Okay. But uh I think the thing I carry with me and I, I don't I don't know if I treasure it, but I, I do value it is is the stigma and it, it allows me to relate. I don't know if that answers your question, but it does, absolutely. Yeah.
4: So, so Bob, as Sam mentioned a few minutes ago, you were sworn in last November by the same judge who convicted you 20 years ago. What did that feel like?
2: And By the way, I think the judge told the attendees that they could go ahead and applaud, which is an unusual thing for a swearing in
5: yeah and he he didn't he didn't remember me i you know it's really funny for you know it going going through what i went to i i wouldn't say I had a bad attitude. one of the papers quoted me saying i hated prosecutors that was that was i didn't i didn't say that i just i i was even going through law school, you know, I was I was a little bit unsure of how to interact with some of these people because I just I, I felt like I carried the stamp, you know, the, the convicted person. And uh, so going back to the judge had a lot more meaning for me, I think, than him. He, he didn't remember me. And I told him the story, and he just he said, I don't—he said, I'm sorry, I don't remember. And uh, But he, he agreed to do it and, you know, to do the swearing in. And, you know, he, he was very kind to my children and welcoming of my family. But uh, it— it was kind of just anticlimactic, you know, just it, uh, it was over and, and that was, it, it's not everybody gets to enjoy these kinds of turning of the pages, you know, the chapters of their life. But for me to, to end up almost within a month, almost 20, you know, about, about, yeah, about 20, 21 years to the day, uh, in front of the same judge. I mean, that was just, it was incredible. You know, then it was over.
2: Bob, tell us about the work you're doing today and in particular the work you're doing with an organization that you founded to help with prisoners reentering the population after being incarcerated.
5: Well, the, the the group I started is uh, Jackson Transitions in Jackson. We're 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 not even an incorporated nonprofit. We're a group of people who kind of come together, and the, the goal that we had was to make sure that everybody uh, sentenced from our county of Jackson, Michigan, was getting uh, a newsletter of a certain type. Though I part of what part of what was helpful to me in prison was I, I really feel I kind of came of age reading the classics and kind of exposing myself to literature and. Full- philosophy and so in in what we produce, we have tried to expose people to that this sort of critical thinking. there's a lot of religious literature that goes into into prisons, but i I tried to offer a different voice anyway so we we operate this newsletter and we try to help people as they reach out to us and you know send send Christmas presents to some some you know, kids of prisoners if we find them. We do this kind of work. Um, and it's it's been fulfilling, and it's it's been a way of trying to distill some of what I learned and just pass it on.
1: It's a tremendous story. It's an amazing journey. Bob Van Summer, and thank you for sharing, and good luck with whatever's next. Well, thank
5: you very much, and thank you for helping me tell my story.
4: We all know the legal world is complex and high-pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com.
1: Our final guest before the grab bag today on Legal Faceoff WGN Radio is Tennessee State Representative Bruce Griffey, who is a Republican, who introduced Tennessee House Bill 1572 back in December of 2019, a very important bill on transgender student-athletes. And the representative joins us right now on WGN. Hello, Mr. Griffey.
6: Thank you. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Tana. Glad to be with you guys.
4: So, Representative, you are the sponsor of a trans-athlete bill in Tennessee which aims at preventing athletes from competing in categories which differ from their biological sex. There is similar legislation in the works in New Hampshire, Washington, Georgia, and Missouri. Can you please explain to our listeners the rationale behind this legislation and what you believe the concerns are and how your bill specifically will address those concerns?
6: Sure, and thank you for the opportunity to do that. Look, all I'm trying to do is maintain fairness in athletic competitions. Uh, We've seen the news reports in various states where we've got transgender males competing against females in the female category of uh, sports, track, wrestling, and so forth, and they're simply dominating those sports. So this bill is simply a test uh, – Um, an attempt to maintain fairness so that girls have the same right to compete against biological girls because there's huge differences biologically and clinically for males and transgender males and then females.
4: So how does your bill specifically address those those issues in your mind?
6: Okay, so what it would do is it would uh, direct uh, the schools anybody that's receiving public funds that uh, they maintain the fairness by biological girls are going to compete against biological girls based on their birth certificates uh, and biological males are going to have to compete against biological males where they've got separate categories for sports competitions.
2: How have other states uh, representative dealt? with the eligibility of transgender high school athletes um, in part, in sports participation?
6: Well, as far as different approaches, I've seen some of them have requested, I think, birth certificates. Some of them are asking for, there's a, gen, a request for genetic testing. Um, and, and I think a couple states are just trying to test the waters and see what's coming out and see how it plays out. I'm sure there may be lawsuits, um, unfortunately. But this this bill is actually an attempt to perhaps uh, avert lawsuits down the road because it would give our judges and the courts clear guidance what Tennessee's policy is. We're simply trying to maintain fairness for girls so that girls can compete against biological girls and they're not at disadvantages by biological males who are transgendering to female.
4: Can you explain why most of the bills that are currently um, under consideration, why they apply only to high school-aged athletes and don't extend to college athletes, and where do associations like the NCAA come out on this issue?
6: Well, I I can't speak for the NCAA, and I think part of the problem that some of the... um, high school and college athletic sports associations there wasn't just a ton of research on this issue initially and since then there has been quite a bit of research at least one noted uh, clinical researcher dr emma hilton uh i believe she's a uh, developmental biologist she got outstanding young investigator from the european society of human genetics she's got a twitter account Uh, At fond of beetles apparently she's got some really interesting statistics about this there's a youtube um, post of her speaking at a conference about this issue she's really got some good clinical data everyone ought to go to if you're concerned about this issue listen to what she's saying and evaluate it for yourself
2: there is a lot of opposition predictably to your bill including from people like the American Civil Liberties Union who say that your policies um, discriminate and also discourage transgender children from participating in competitive sports. How do you answer that criticism?
6: Well, I think that when we're talking about biological sex, we've had, uh, if you want to call it discrimination, that's one word, I think separation or different treatment for these two uh, classes of human beings, whether they're fe- biological females or biological males, and it's been that way for a number of years because I think we've all recognized the uh, physiological differences between the two sexes. Uh, sex is not, has not been interpreted legally to be gender, and I believe there's a, a case before the Supreme Court, they're probably going to come out with a, an opinion pretty soon that is going to address whether sex uh, includes gender under, I believe it's... Maybe it's a housing law. I've got to get the case. I didn't have time to pull that and research before uh, coming on the show today. But it's just there's so much clinical data and just facts of life that the size, um, the strength, uh, there's so many differences between men and women that it's not fair to have women have to compete against men, particularly in athletic competition. When it comes down to strength, physical abilities, quickness, uh, I can I can read through some of the t- statistics uh, that Dr. Hilton has uh, come up with through her research. and It's very interesting. So. Look, if, if we're going to – if we want to change the law, how we look on sex and gender, I think it's fine for America to have that discussion. I don't think it's fine to let's change what we all understand legally, particularly when there's no real set of rules about, well, what is transgender, who gets to, to qualify, and, and it's just sort of someone identifies. So it it opens up um, – or other activities to potential abuse by folks that maybe they're not successful as competing as a male or whatever but feel like that their odds of competing against females may be increased and you know I've got two daughters I've got one is competitive in golf but and if she had to compete against uh, some of the male golfers who've decided that they just now identify as transgender I mean they can knock the ball 350 yards on a drive my daughter can't do that and it's just simply not fair for females to have to compete against males, so I'm not trying to disadvantage the transgender. You know, honestly because of the physiological differences, they should be competing against men if they were born men and have hit puberty because they've been exposed to uh, testosterone. Representative, we've and only
2: got a minute left, so I just want to ask you a really quick sure. question that I'm sure some of our listeners would want to ask. So what if your daughter um, was playing against a you know female that you that you'd define as a girl? What if that teammate of hers was just physically stronger? and more developed and better as an athlete. Would you try to enact legislation to separate them?
6: No, because that's sort of the facts of life and where we are, and her competitor would not have been exposed through natural processes to as much testosterone and gone through puberty. So she wouldn't have that automatic general class advantage of uh, having gone through puberty. Um, Males have 40% more muscle mass and 40% less body fat than females. Uh, They're five inches taller. They have longer arms, bigger hands, longer legs, narrower pelvis which enables them to run at a better grade, a better gait. You know, males' testosterone surges then stabilizes about 20 times greater than females. Even after... males, you've undergone treatment for trans women. They don't lose bone density. They don't get shorter. And even after three years uh, of treatment, they still retain significantly more muscle mass than females. So I don't see how we're going to have fair competition if you're allowing a a group, a class of folks to come in and compete against girls who have a a greater physiological advantage than females do.
1: That is the Republican Representative Bruce Griffey from the state of Tennessee. Appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. You are listening to Christina Martini on
7: Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will, and Emery, visit MWE.com.
1: Legal Grab Bag time yes. on Legal Face Off, WGN Radio, WGNRadio.com. Thanks to Ben Anderson, per usual, for Rich and Tina. My name is Sam. I'm excited for this Grab Bag because we have somebody that always begs us to come on, <laughs> and then we have somebody yeah. we haven't had on in a long time. The former which is John which? Bulger. Hey. Yeah. Hey. Can I come on? Yes. WGN Radio. Sure. Yes. BulgerNow.com. The much sought after spot yep. on Legal Face Off. Yep. And you've got John a couple bullshit. shows coming up with Shooting For? Did I say it right? Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. It's a tough word to Schadenfreude.
8: say. Schadenfreude. It's German. Uh, mein, mein Gewalt.
1: <laughs> so you got a show on February 22nd, February 23rd. born info dot And yeah. Jessica Rimkis is the one who, last time you were on, I think it was... Three, four years ago? Were you on? We were trying to at figure least. out if you were on.
9: I might have just been in the background feeding Rich. Sometimes. Yeah.
1: I don't know. <laughs> I, I thought, Just uh, in my ear role. telling me what to yeah. say. <laughs> I thought she Q was on. running around. Yeah. Formerly Bryce Downey and Lenkov, and now the general counsel at Sentinel Technology. Welcome back. Left us.
2: Happy moved year. on to greener pastures, bigger and better things. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't even believe she still talks to me, but she, here she is, Jessica Rimicus
9: Yeah, I have to humble myself every once in a while. Happy Corporate counsel
1: at Sentinel <laughs> Technologies. So seven topics for you no I thought we're we were blurring. We weren't going to blurb. No, we're not going to blurb. <laughs> Inside joke. Save guy. the blurb. Uh, blurb ourselves. Uh, I, always, I always enjoy when we lead off our grab bag with a story from TMZ, because why, why wouldn't we? Meghan Markle threatens a lawsuit against her father. It hits everything we
2: love. It hits the Royals. It, it hits Canada. So yeah, Exit. we all, and this is, the, by the way, the lead story is usually reserved for the most important legal story going on. <laughs> so forget Trump impeachment. Forget everything else it's royals so the ex royals ex-royals formerly they are now living in Vancouver and we all probably seen pictures of them in Vancouver right? We saw Megan uh, holding the baby and push, and there's a couple, she's, she's walking the dogs and she's got bodyguards and then there was a picture of her driving which was unusual because we haven't seen her drive as a royal right? You're not allowed to drive so those were big and now because of those pictures she has threatened to sue paparazzi in Canada or wherever they may be for not just taking but destroying Distributing these photos, of course, in Great Britain there are strict laws preventing this type of journalism. In the wake of the death of uh, Prince Harry's mother, Princess Diana, so many years ago, um, the laws in Canada, in British Columbia in particular, I looked them up. Uh, they are not quite as strict as those in the UK, but they do prohibit this type of journalism. They um, prohibit not just. They consider it harassment to not just be you know, on someone's property, but to use lenses and cameras. So they have threatened lawsuits. I imagine they will pursue them um, because of how sensitive they are, understandably, to this type of journalism. So apparently the ex-royals could not escape the poppers wherever they go, even in our pristine and polite country of Canada where I was born. Tina, what do you?
4: Yeah, you escaped. Yes, because of, because <laughs> Yet of <you're> nonstop <laughs>
6: paparazzi
2: attention. As a young man, future podcast host, that I had yeah. to face. A. a. Well,
4: yeah, I mean, I I think at the end of the day, you know, the 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 full truth behind why they are now ex royals will probably not be known by most of us. But I think they just want to have a normal life at this point. And I I agree with you, Rich, that I think they are going to continue to do what they need to do legally to push back on the paparazzi so that they don't feel like every move they make is under scrutiny and being um, commercialized.
2: Yet we consume this stuff, right, Jessica? I mean, people can't get enough of the royals and of this story in particular. Um, It's interesting. I was watching a, I saw a comparison of some Fairly innocuous details and how it was covered for um, Princess Kate versus Princess uh, Megan. Literally, the press would describe Princess Kate in much more flowery and favorable language, and they were very derogatory in the way they uh, described the same facts with Megan. So people can't get enough. So the question is, can you really crack down on paparazzi through litigation when there's such a – humongous public appetite for all things Harry and Meghan.
9: Yeah, right now seems like a pivotal period, too, because the irony is they're escaping royal life to get to normal life, but now everyone's obsessed with con- the consumption of this normal life and how that's going to play out. So if, I think for at least this time period, there's going to be this spotlight on them to see exactly, oh my God, Megan drove her own car, which is going to be something that fascinates everyone when it wouldn't normally fascinate anyone on a celebrity level. Um, and
2: especially, by the way, in Canada, where we only have like four celebrities, right? There's like B. Bird, he doesn't live there, and like. <laughs> Kiana you know, yeah, Adams is still big, right? Keanu Reeves, and Keanu Reeves. Rush. And, Rush, yeah, Rush, The Royal Train. Less popular today it's than they were last week. So the <laughs> worst worst just too con- soon, goes out too soon, yeah. too soon. But like, especially in Vancouver, like usually you see celebrities in Toronto, maybe Montreal, Vancouver, especially uh, Vancouver Island, where they are living is really sort of like backwoods and, and not that celebrity friendly. So they're even more. It's even more of a fishbowl
8: where they are now. The invasion of privacy is bad, eh? You know? (laughs) And B... What are you talking about? And and B... I mean, just... uh, Pardon? Pardon. Uh, Don't apologize. Yeah, and B... I'll tell you right now. Yeah. Lens size. It's all about lens size. It's all lens size. They they have to make it all about lens size. Because that was the law. They said if it's X amount of length... Now you're invading. And I'm like, I I think proximity is a pretty good judge, too.
9: Yeah, that Zoom. Really, yeah. You know, it's still going to be there. Um, I think it's also interesting in terms of the argument over whether there is an expectation to privacy in a public park. I mean, by the very nature of public park, you'd think no. But then when you look at that picture, it does look like she think she's on a private walk with her son and two dogs. Yeah, so. that's
2: exactly the key legal point is what expectation of privacy do you have based on where you are and also based on who you, who who you are, right? I mean, these people are among the most famous people on earth. Is it really fair to have them expect that they're daily whereabouts and actions won't wear, boots. Be, wear, boots, <laughs> wear boots won't be covered by the press oh, I right? get a I, yeah. or two. if I'm on a jury I would I would buy into the argument that they have availed themselves of the positive aspects of you know this this fame over many years I mean their
8: net worth is huge so you're saying with sweet come sour Exactly. Okay. Absolutely. That makes sense. So By the way, according to Google, uh,
1: very popular list of celebrities: Ryan Reynolds, Justin Bieber, Drake, Seth Rogen, mm-hmm. Celine Dion, Jim Carrey, William Shatner, Pamela Anderson, and Keanu Reeves. That's the top ten right there. Ryan Reynolds. I can't believe I missed that. I'm a Marvel guy. That's What's me.
8: up? I,
1: I don't know. I don't idiot. Idiot. know. Both. Those are, are some big supposed names. To, supposed <laughs> to know these things. Ryan Reynolds.
8: Can't. he's a uh, Canadian. And, and th- Gosling, the other Ryan. <laughs> Mind blown. Also a lawyer on a show.
1: Yes. Yeah. He hosts legal face-off <laughs> yes, in Canada. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I don't know if anybody saw this late on Tuesday night. There was a basketball game in the state of Kansas, Jayhawks and Wildcats, Kansas, Kansas State, a brawl, which included a, a chair, a stool, a garbage can, players going into the sideline, spilling into the crowd, and now suspensions are flowing left and right, and the question to the attorneys in the room is, was this criminal?
2: Yeah, what's the nickname do you have a nickname the Malice at the Allen or or what, you know? But um yeah, it was a pretty horrific scene last night. When this went into the crowd and one of the Players was you know raised a A, a chair and was going to hit someone Thankfully he was stopped before he did so uh, Dick Vitale who's probably The most you know famous and Well-known college basketball analyst in the Country is the one who said this Was criminal he used the word criminal I think
5: Yeah
2: exactly um, And I think uh, another commentator Said it was criminal so the you know question Before us is after the Dust settles down and there are suspensions. And some have called for a year suspension, a lifetime ban for, the, for these players. But is it criminal activity? And certainly there is an argument that this is assault, right? We've seen many cases where, including the malice in the palace uh, in Detroit, what, about
1: 15 years ago? Should we call ago,
8: this not so great in Kansas State? Ooh. I like that. You like, I like it. it? I like that. It. So I great. like it.
1: I like that. It's Can't also called, it's called there, the like fog. It. it could just be the fight at the fog. Yeah. <laughs> but there
2: are like many that. circumstances where because of the nature of the fight, because of where it took place, this one went into the stands. There were spectators uh, involved. That does translate into criminal activity for wh- by which... You know, a prosecutor could pursue criminal activity, whether they are criminal prosecution, where they will, whether they will depends on a lot of the, you know, facts of the case and politics. Right. I mean, Kansas basketball is like number one through 10 of the top 10 things about Kansas. So would you want to be the prosecutor who goes after a Jayhawk basketball player as a result
1: of this? We've upset Canada and Kansas, off for the record. <laughs> What are you guys' thoughts?
4: Well, I think the politics make it tricky, as you mentioned, Rich, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, you're spot on that the key distinguishing factor here is this went into the stands. I don't, we've covered a lot of stories over, you know, these various episodes we've had over the years about where you draw the line between injury to spectators. You know, should it be, you know, who who pays for that sort of thing? Here, we had a brawl that extended into the stands and into spectators, and I don't think it's reasonable for any spectator To walk in thinking that they're going to be, you know, in the center of this type of mayhem. So, I vote for for prosecution.
2: Yeah, John, and the malice in the palace, which is the most similar, I think, uh, event. That's the famous Pacers Pistons brawl. Um, from 2004, there was criminal charges brought. Now, again, that's a professional game. This is a college game. Who was
8: the guy from the Houston Rockets who went into the stands and just, like, a good six, seven flights in and just whopped the guy for, for I think, making fun of his uh, mentally disabled kid? Yeah. Yeah, there was somebody who did that. So I, I so it's, there's precedent, and you, it's happened before. But, this but one, in
2: Detroit, five players were charged with assault and eventually sentenced yeah. to one year probation and community service. Interestingly, five fans also faced criminal charges and were banned from Pistons Games for Life after that event. So do you think that's appropriate here, assault charges? Again, remembering that these are student athletes. They're you 17-, know, 18-year-old kids. I saw on first take this morning, um, Jay Williams and um, um, the Fab Five player Jalen Rose were debating this. and. You know, they brought up the fact that these are young men, that it was a charge situation, and they compared it to fights in baseball and hockey, saying, listen, if it's okay to fight in baseball and hockey, why doesn't that translate to basketball? I think one of the obvious reasons is why there's no fans around fights in hockey or baseball, right? That doesn't spill into the stands the same way it does in in, in this sport. Jessica, what are your thoughts on this?
9: Well, I'm curious. Are we thinking assault in the realm of potential injuries or injuries to fans or to the other players involved? Or both? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think it could be both. I think the right. fact the fans are involved obviously makes the case of assault a little stronger because, like Tita mentioned, they don't have the expectation that they'll be, you know, punched in the face if they go to a game. The same way you could argue that a player That's not on the ticket. It's not on the, <laughs> the ticket. <laughs> It's not on that ticket. But you you could argue that a player assumes the risk of getting into a fight when they you know, contact sports. Absolutely. Sure. Right. So I think that's a great point.
9: Yeah, I think at the very least, when you're looking at basketball, fans who are sitting courtside have the expectation of, you know, a player's running into them you know, from the court during a play, I think that the expectation is also there that we've seen fights erupt in basketball games as a contact sport. So I think there is an expectation and it would be reasonable to think that a risk is assumed as a fan sitting courtside that a fight could break out into your area.
2: And aside from the criminal liability, I'm sure we will see some civil lawsuits, right? I mean, Uh, If I'm a fan, not me personally, but you know there will be fans who are there, maybe even who weren't there, who will bring lawsuits saying, I was assaulted, I have PTSD, I was injured from this you know, melee that ensued.
1: Up next on the grab bag, Tina, we start with you. The granddad of the toddler who fell to her death on the Royal Caribbean cruise ship has broken his silence.
4: Yes, so we've had some developments. Um, Our listeners will remember that a few weeks ago we talked about how The family of Chloe, who was the toddler who fell to her death last summer on the Royal Caribbean cruise, announced last month that they were suing Royal Caribbean, claiming that there should have been warning signs about open windows because they could have warned the grandfather who was holding Chloe at the time that she fell um, well, Royal Caribbean earlier this month filed a motion to dismiss, claiming that they have evidence that demonstrates that Chloe's grandfather knew full well that uh, there was an open window there. Um, it, it's actually a really sad story that keeps getting sadder um, by, by the week. Um, there are pictures that they included with their motion. Um, which shows still images that apparently, according to the cruise line, were taken from security video, which demonstrates that her grandfather was actually sticking his window, his his head out the window, while Chloe was on the floor right before the accident happened. Um, and so they, they filed a motion to dismiss, claiming that the grandfather clearly knew that the window was open and um, notwithstanding that knowledge, he held her out and that's how the accident happened. Sad stuff, Rich. Yeah,
2: these allegations, if true, are a game changer both civilly and criminally, right? Yes. He's also facing criminal charges. But yeah, I mean, if this video, and again, his attorney has said he saw the video and they're not, in, it's not inconsistent with his client's allegation that he thought the window was closed. But let's assume that the filing is correct and the defendant, Royal Caribbean, does have a video showing this grandfather before he... You know, dropped his granddaughter, uh, sticking his head out the window or his upper body out the window for several seconds. That's a game changer. I mean, case over, right? There's not much discussion there that uh, Royal Caribbean is at fault. You could still argue, and they will argue that the grandfather's degree of fault is less than the degree of fault that the cruise line has, because maybe they shouldn't have left the windows open in the first place. Maybe they should have put up warning signs. But. If I'm on that jury, and as someone who defends these kind of cases all the time, for him to say that he didn't know about it, if there's video of him, and also, most importantly, the effect on his credibility, right? When he said all over the place that he wasn't aware of it, and he blamed it on his color colorblindness. Blindness. Yeah. That video, I think, fatally affects his credibility before a jury, so... It's probably if that's true, the case should be dismissed fairly quickly. I think. What do you guys think?
8: The defense was really funny because they uh, they said this mischaracterized the the, the uh, situation and didn't expound on it. So I'd be like, it's like liar liar, where you're just like, I object. Why? It's really damning to my case. <laughs> <All right. laughs> you know, I, I, I don't like that. Just fact. because,
9: yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: just because, which, cause, which yeah. you see
8: all the time. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean,
2: yeah. So yeah. There's, Jessica there's remembers no the Jessica remembers the days of uh, plaintiff lawyers telling you that your case that your defenses were garbage when you called them out on it. They had no well. no explanation mm-hmm. why. So.
9: Yeah, this one was rough because everyone wants and feels for this family and in particular the grandpa who's already dealing with grieving the loss of his grandchild. And when I first read this headline, you know, um, that there's some... You know, potentially damning evidence that came out showing that he knew this window was open. I was kind of skeptical, thinking, all right, what did they get footage of him near the window where he might have seen it was open? But then when you watch it or see the picture, you see him hanging out the very window in which she fell. And it's hard to not see this as a smoking gun for the defense.
2: One thing, though, that I've learned from, and Jessica will remember this from dealing with surveillance for this, because we represent, I represent, and Jessica, when she worked with us, represented lots of companies, lots of big corporations that have surveillance videos everywhere. Everything from casinos to grocery stores to anyone you could think of, and they all, as you can imagine, have surveillance video. So we have used this defense many times successfully, where we have video depicting a plaintiff who otherwise alleges that my client was at fault. And we show the video and say, hey, you're at fault. The key thing to remember that's harmful to that defense that a plaintiff's lawyer told me years ago, who's far more experienced than me, said, at the end of the day, don't forget that the jury is going to look at a video of of, of, of the plaintiff injuring themselves and even though you might have some good legal defenses they're going to sympathize with someone who slipped and fell at a grocery store violently even though there might have been a cone nearby that video is compelling people are
8: unintended consequences
2: yeah Yeah, yeah. people are persuaded by video so in this case it's a great defense but if you get a jury member who's sympathetic to this old man looking out the window and then dropping his grandchild that might also change the, the the facts
1: this story from Variety. Remember the ousted Grammy chief. Um, there's now a lawsuit against that Grammy chief by a former executive assistant. So a lot of uh, litigation around the Grammys. Here. Yeah, Grammys
2: are coming up Sunday. This Sunday, and Deborah Dugan took over the head of the Recording Academy, and after just five months, uh, she was out. She was ousted. She was the president and CEO. So the story broke a few days ago where her assistant, who was the longtime assistant to her predecessor, Neil Portno, Neil Portneau, for 17 years, uh, headed up the academy. He was a you know, he is a white male and some of the reasons he left the academy involved allegations of harassment. Um, anyway, she took over. after five months, she was uh, fired and his assistant, who became her assistant, said that her management style was bullying. And that's the re- That was one of the reasons the company gave, or the you know uh, academy gave, in getting rid of her. Well, within hours, she turned around and filed an EEOC complaint against the academy, alleging a number of violations, including sexual harassment, including rape. Um, she alleges that Port- or that uh, um, the a lawyer at the law firm. That the Academy used, who also, by the way, she alleged overcharged the Academy by millions over the years. She says um, he sexually harassed her. Again, she alleges rape. She alleges that all of these charges leveled against her are um, because she called out a lot of financial improprieties. A lot of voting irregularities surrounding who they gave Grammys to, so this is exploding. Wow. She hired, <laughs> so um, nice. she hired a very prominent lawyer. Law firms are just rubbing their like, mm, okay,
8: absolutely. So uh, it should yeah. be an
2: interesting Grammys on uh, on Sunday. <laughs>
8: I'll tell you one thing that I can uh, that shocked me. I didn't know they had a CEO. I just figured they'd have a panel of five people behind a desk and just go, eh, yes, no. It's <laughs> like they have a corporate structure. You just thought
2: there was a real-life person who the Grammy is... Yeah, just be like... Uh, the uh, statue uh, person who's just <laughs> overlords. I over just the yeah. thought there camera. was a little dog yeah, like, listening yeah. to it. The Elusive it on, <laughs> Academy is <laughs> yeah. always
9: criticized, but it sounds like it's it sounds like, it? like up in the clouds somewhere. Yeah, right, exactly. Like, right. who is this? To be like, that's <laughs> the CEO, that's uh-huh. the vice president. But
8: what, what was weird about it that, that kind of shocked me was... This happens a lot in pro sports. Uh, you have a head coach who is beloved, who gets fired. Now, all those college kids they recruited are in that room and under that corporate banner. Now, the new coach comes in, they have to win over that room. At the best they can do is 50% if they're killing it. And the problem is you have people who dislike the new management style, like the old person. So you have such a conflict of, and confluence of personalities, and now you have a ton of money behind it. So now in comes the he said, she said, and it's going to, this could, this is like a piñata. It's and to, just going to keep coming up. Yeah, and
2: John, to that point, and Tina, the Academy has fired back at her saying, what we frequently hear against females who allege improprieties, that if it was so bad, why didn't you raise these issues until after you were fired? Surprised they took that position in the culture that we're living in now Which, you know, is basically a position of blaming the victim and not believing her because she's only raising it now. It might be true, but interesting that they took that position.
4: Yeah, I agree with you. And I think at the end of the day, you know, taking a 50,000 foot perspective on this, there are some claims here that go to the really to the heart of what the Grammys is all about. Right. And if there's any truth at all to these allegations about favoritism, for example, um, you you, you'd like to think that the parties are probably going to end up settling this pretty quickly before any more significant dirty laundry comes out to the extent that there is some. So I agree with you, Rich. An interesting um, tactic there. I'm not sure that that was the best approach under the circumstances. Yeah, and
2: remember, I mean, Jessica, when the EEOC takes a case, it's now the federal government pursuing a case. They certainly will listen to what the accuser, with the person who brings the complaint, thinks, and they, you know, will work with them. But it's really the federal government's case now to make or not make.
9: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's going to come down to, and as Tina said, you know, extracting all these this witness testimony, and it's going to come down to a big he said she said, regardless of the venue. I think so. I think everyone's probably on the Academy side eager to quell this immediately.
1: One of Rich's favorite artists, Mariah Carey, in trouble being to the Grammys, right? <laughs> by a former nanny. What happened? Urine. <laughs> <laughs>
2: there's peeing allegations involved, in
1: unpaid terrible. wages and damages, according to the nanny. But and peeing, so
2: there's like different lawsuits. Mariah Carey. Wait, is, I didn't
8: read the peeing.
2: What? Yeah, here's the headline: ex assistant says she was peed on while working for a singer. Whoa, right? That's a Yikes. game changer. Urine nice. is a game changer generally in, in lawsuits. But oh. yeah, Mariah Carey and her Number former one is as- no fun assistant. <laughs> are suing each other in separate lawsuits. Carrie is Little accusing yeah. uh, a woman by the name, I can't even pronounce her name, there's a lot of uh, letters in here, of attempted of attempted extortion. Extortion, I should say. And then she is suing Carrie of abuse over the years and underpayment of wages. She was only paid... Uh, twenty five dollars an hour to babysit Carrie's children, and I don't know more I Carrie. back. can imagine babysitting her? Tw- she has twins, right? Yes. Because. Imagine babysitting those kids is worth way more than twenty five bucks. <laughs> like, imagine how hard those kids
8: are to babysit. And right? that
1: is probably not what the nanny wanted for Christmas. <laughs> exactly. right? All I wanted for Christmas. Uh, was that. There you go.
8: Oh. So, oh. how many nannies have to wear a beekeeper beekeeper mask you know, to go <laughs> yes. deal with their kids? That's a know.
2: real but question. But here is the key allegation: like, yeah. Shaq Nazarian also accused. Someone named Bull the Arch, Nicole, the yeah, on, on Mariah's team of holding her down on the ground and urinating oh on her, and/or allowing her to be urinated upon in the what? presence of others on multiple occasions. I'd say that's bearing the lead.
8: Probably <laughs> that should probably be right probably up there. The that's, yeah. that's absolutely yeah. abhorrent. Yeah. That's abhorrent.
2: Yeah, generally, urine is not the best way to oh go about God. treating your employees. So. Tina?
9: <laughs> yeah. Yes. Good luck, Tina. Yeah, yeah. I was Go just going to or... say, what do I
4: have to say on this? Yeah. Gross? Yeah, Disgusting? Yeah. I don't know. Not I'm in for... favor. I don't know. This is- um,
2: Pro you... or con urine <laughs> yeah. on your Quick driver. <laughs> I mean, I, I, on I have- your bodyguard a... slash driver. I
4: have to say, I draw the line when we start talking about urination. No. But, you know, we always have to ask the question, are these allegations true? Yes. Yes. You know, I mean, we've got situations that we see countless times involving famous people having really bad things uh, alleged against them, some of which are true and some of which are not, so...
2: So, correct. All true. Jessica, uh, Mariah Carey was spotted recently with a $116,000 Birkin bag. Is that a thing? Birkin? Do you know what that is?
9: I do know what it is. Do you have yeah. a Birkin bag? Uh, no, Your no, general counsel. Right. Don't no, forget. Right. Getting there, i sure.
4: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a mortgage just, out for a Birkin uh, bag. Let's just
2: skip to the inevitable favorite Mariah Carey song that you've all been waiting for. Sam has already given us All I Want for Christmas. John, favorite? Carrie's song come
8: on um my favorite is got to be uh, yes absolutely we waiting love, for us. yeah alright i'm good all right you're good <laughs> jessica favorite this is uh, your era all right i'll give it to you is always your always my baby oh, <laughs>
9: That's a good one yeah, it's a classic
2: it's a good one uh tina martini favorite so Uh-oh. i
4: still like i still like vision of love i mean that was really her breakthrough song vision of love was not that uh, that was like her first song that oh, was that her wasn't, first big uh, hit
2: uh, Oh, you're right. That was Mariah it, Carey. it. Was not
4: Whitney Houston. It was Mariah Carey.
2: Yeah, I was thinking of Char. I loved her movie Glitter. I thought
8: that it was Char, No, Charday. Was, was, was or okay. Sade? It's Charday. She's it's a smooth Shardet. operator. Yeah, it
1: was smooth I liked uh, Emotions. Right. That was a great song You've too. I was actually going to gonna say Heartbreaker, but you already spoke for me. Uh-huh. So, it's got uh-huh. a
2: lilty voice. It's lilty. All I want for Christmas is you has reached the number one spot for the first time, 25 years after it was released in 2019.
9: Wow. A
8: 1994 song.
9: Great wow. songstress. The most Maybe popular. Not a great boss. Yeah. yeah,
8: I got to be honest with you. Uh, that's kind of a one-trick pony that you're milking since <laughs> 1994. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, the, just like, but Christmas is coming, stuck. right, kids? <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, every year. Do you have she,
5: a?
1: Do you have a Birkin bag? No. Exactly. Yeah. Do you pee on people? Exactly. No. no.
9: <laughs> Case no. closed. It sounds like a red herring, but you run with <laughs> every it.
1: Every time you get to Thanksgiving, though, and everybody cuts their turkey or ham, once we're done with Thanksgiving, we're on to a month of that song. And every time That's it plays, That's right. Every
8: time. Every, every she gets paid. single
9: year. So. Birkin's rolling in. Every yeah, Christmas. just
8: get a new driver Birkin. that doesn't pee on people. That's right.
1: <laughs> Michael Avenatti, who- More urine stories. <laughs> no, <I'm> speaking <laughs> of urine. He's been kept <laughs> like in a a solitary confinement for his own safety, and I put- his own safety, Tina, in quotation marks.
4: Yes. So our listeners will remember that we had probably the last interview with Michael Avenatti before he was arrested. Did this we? was bad Yeah, we did remember. It was wow. like two days before he was arrested. Wow. So Dershowitz,
2: Avenatti, everyone comes through legal face-off. Rim kiss. Uh, Effie Bailey, the stars Painter. never stop. Effie Bailey, yeah. Let's flea. not forget him. That's right. The so, original flea. The,
4: <laughs> so um, Avenatti is in jail. He's in prison. Um, he's been accused of a lot of financial crimes, embezzlement, trying to extort Nike. He's currently set for trial in California in May. Um, but he is now in solitary confinement, as San mentioned, in, at New York Federal Prison at the Metropolitan Correctional Center. In solitary confinement where El Chapo was, bringing it full circle to a story we've, care, we've, uh, we've covered many a time here on Legal Face-Off. So, um, the same
2: prison as Epstein.
4: Yes. Another topic. it got to be a tourist uh,
2: spot pretty soon, right? Avenatti, El Chapo, Epstein. Check One a stop pulse. shop, it's yeah. Check a pulse. Lineup. He also has not been treated very well, well apparently. Right, right, exactly. A lot of so tears. apparently, there's Crime. a lot of
4: tears. So his it's cell is freezing Who yeah, cares? exactly.
2: He didn't have enough blankets. So his yeah, no. Well, said. he's
4: only had three blankets, and his cell is freezing. It's, it's
9: cold. in the mid 40s. So would have that's thought that
8: prison would be cold <laughs> or, or <God. laughs> cruel, exactly, or really right. difficult to deal with? Yeah. It's 40 not, degrees. Not has to be
9: an exaggeration, right? 40s. Yeah, that's what his attorneys are claiming, which I feel like is. It was a little uninhabitable. There was a was penguin a little,
8: there. There was a penguin smoking a, a cigarette cold. next to him. <laughs> okay.
9: I, Heard it here first. Bye. The it's, thread it's,
8: counts on the sheets weren't quite what he <laughs> used. It was Egyptian cotton. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just uh, here's the thing. I hate it when people always do this where they're so bully pulpit when they're in the public sphere, and then as soon as they get the the legal doctrine turned on them. All of a sudden, it's, <laughs> oh, me, just Mayacopa. copa. Right. And then he gets busted. And then he's criming while he's out on bond. I mean, nonstop. Yeah. Yeah. So after a while, people, you know, so I hate to say this. There's the pity effect. He, there's just no Did you appetite. say criming, by the way? Yeah, yeah. Criming, I love that. I, I like non-stop. that, too. I may mean, have to Good find verb. ways
4: to use <laughs> yeah. that.
2: Rhyming yeah. and criming. Yeah, guys over I there there a new criming. podcast on WGN. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
4: So, yeah, so it looks like um, people are taking pity on him. He's going to get access to all the legal materials that he wants. And he's also going to have contact visits, mm-hmm. which I can only imagine what you guys are going to do the with conjugal that. Visits?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
4: that are, those are not little the little kind of visits that they're being I want to be in the same
2: cell that Al Chapo had conjugal visits in <laughs> if I'm Michael Avenatti. I'm just saying, because, you know. You're
4: spreading rumors now, Rich. I, I,
2: uh, <laughs> same cell. What are the odds that Al Chapo and Avenatti would, say, would share the same... Not same at the same cell. time. Do but you think he scrawled think a it. note
8: ahead of time? Yeah, Just yeah he's exactly. like, Hey, Michael, have
9: a good one. Ask yes. for a third blanket. <laughs> yeah, third blanket. El Blanquito, Trace. Yeah, I don't think anyone's sympathizing. The tunnel with- is this way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone's <laughs> sympathizing with Avenatti here, but when you do hear that this is the same cell El Chapo was in, who's responsible for like mass murder, drug cartels, and then you hear about this, you know, guy going in with a couple of white collar, just a yeah, couple you... white collar things under as well, you are kind of like, well, oh, it's it seems
8: nice. disproportionate,
9: right? right. Okay, yeah. you, you know That's the true. guards, you just expect just... different uh, environments for these two guys. Yeah, and but... you know the
2: guards when they throw them in that same cell, they're just laughing in the background. There's no way that just by coincidence these two guys ended <laughs> up in the same cell, but you know, in in in, in consecutive times, like he has got to be a bunch of guys in the back said, let's try this. yeah <laughs> let's, put, let's see what happens if Avenatti goes to yeah. the El Chapo
8: cell. Put him in the chiller. Yeah, exactly. It does seem
9: like those very guards, though, would also want to avoid any more conversation about Epstein. So yeah. it's surprising they would actually True. throw that back into the spotlight. True. We have Not a handful best. of
1: minutes left I'm being let's told go. we have let's to go, go. but... The last story, ABA Journal reporting on why partners would leave law firms. How mm. interesting, with our
2: with our guest Jessica Remkes in the studio.
9: Well, I think the key word there is partner, so oh. maybe if that had
2: occurred.
4: <laughs> oh, I that oh, she won't,
8: that was a nice <laughs> move, <laughs> I like that. Is that a boxing glove on the pen? Yeah, that explains everything. it.
4: <laughs> so everybody thinks it's about money, but apparently it isn't according to this ABA survey. Um, apparently it's lack of confidence in firm management and strategy Uh-oh. that drives m- most partners out of their law firms.
2: Uh-oh, um, a little too close to home.
4: <laughs> I mean, there are other reasons to feeling like there's no support or lack of support in building your practice, as well as disliking your firm's culture and compensation, of course, is always part of it. Um, but the lack of confidence in firm management and strategy, I think is a very interesting one.
8: I know nothing about that. <laughs> Nor does Jessica
9: well, that wraps that up <laughs> yeah, right. thanks for being here.
8: Well, my law firm of giggles, titters, and yucks um, we are we, we try we strive for only a bunch of giggles and lots of fun, but we never would like to cross examine. we just kind of you know we have a good time. We do have this moonshine out called conjugal visits it's going to be out next me- next month yes it's not as good it's not as tasty. tassty it rebels entirely
2: <laughs> Jessica, what the conventional wisdom now is that you know the millennials and 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 beyond Don't care as much about money. And that's not, as Tina said, and this is survey says, as not as big a motivating factor for people, partners or otherwise leaving firms. Do you think that's true? Do you think people are really looking for culture? Do you think they're looking for quality of life? Other benefits? Why do attorneys leave firms now more than they did back when Tina and I were coming up?
9: Hmm. I mean, if we're broadening the scope to anyone leaving law firms as opposed to... Because when I'm thinking of partners, I'm wondering what breakdown of that pool is millennials. Let's say
2: just attorneys and traditional law firms. Well... You're the expert on that. Come
9: on. Right, right. I would think, I do think culture is becoming more and more this number one for all millennials and probably just the greater workforce at large. But I've seen more often than not people, especially big companies, pulling in these um, culture managers or um, chief chief people officers type roles where people are recognizing that's an important investment to retain talent. Um, Slight side note, just when it comes to surveys, I'm always a little bit skeptical. I think people, even when it's just, you know, anonymous are kind of wanting to give a more principled approach than just saying compensation. I think compensation probably still lingers closer to the top.
2: You know, a great, speaking of, uh, of, uh, great playwrights. We talked earlier about Aaron Sorkin, David Mamet, you know, he he wrote, you ever see Heist?
1: Yes. Great line of Heist is, um,
2: everyone loves money. That's why they call it money. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, which makes no sense but it's a great David yeah. Mammon line so line. when they say it's not about the money guess what it's about
8: the money it's right. the money Lebowski exactly yeah, so right. I, I feel like
9: when people are filling out their surveys they're like it's about the money but let's go with what is it confidence and firm <laughs> yeah. for sure so I out of 10 of like,
8: them this one outlier they're like yeah that's what it is uh-huh. <laughs> oh my
4: god is um, just having some experience As with national
8: this national hiring partner right
4: yes well my experience with this is that compensation is always in the equation but I think there has to be at least one other factor in play that drives somebody to actually not follow the momentum that they've been following for sometimes many years and to actually go and start looking elsewhere. I think Compensation compensation's always an issue, but I think sometimes it's not what pushes people out the door.
1: We do have a comment, too, before we go. Yvonne O'Connor is watching on Facebook Live, and she says, firms drain your soul.
2: Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> guess, guess what firm Yvonne O'Connor used to work <laughs> at. Hi, Yvonne. <laughs> by, by the way, now is my client. Yvonne is now my client, so she goes from someone who... Hello, Yvonne. Yvonne yes. <laughs> is now someone who's, uh, who I have to kowtow to. So you agree or disagree
1: with the comment there?
2: Uh, I didn't listen to it at all, Yvonne.
1: I agree. Of course I I agree. (laughs) Yvonne's
2: my client. I have to agree with it.
1: All righty. That does it for Legal Face Off here in mid-January. Thanks to John Bulger. Thank you. BulgerNow.com. Jessica Remkus. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming. We'll talk to you in two weeks here on LFO.
0: It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkov. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab, so hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports Hollywood and don't forget.